Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, Redemption Hill. Uh, that was my daughter Adeline. Thank you, dear. All right, well, let's try this again. Good morning, church. This should be interesting. Normally, we all have the face mics, and uh, that's obviously how I practice as well. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Um, so if you are new or newish to Redemption Hill Church, my name is Blake Sellers, and I am a lay, ca- a lay elder candidate here at Redemption Hill. That's a mouthful. And uh, it's also kind of confusing, I'm sure, if you haven't been around uh, Redemption Hill or other churches like ours. Uh, basically, that term just means uh, that I have a nine-to-five day job that isn't employed by the church. That's the lay part. Uh, But then the elder candidate part means that I'm on track to uh, become a full teaching, serving spiritual leader here at Redemption's Hill. Uh, Candidate is kind of sometime in the next five years or so. (laughs) That's on me. Uh, So if you put those two things together, then you have lay elder candidate. And you also get a guy who was last up here in July and so then overanalyzes his introduction and you have a long drawn out thing like this. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, what that means is, is that I really love this church and um, my wife and I have been here for the last almost seven years and uh, you all have been an incredible blessing to us and um, it is a blessing to be up here in front of you as well. So um, as you can see outside with the weather that we're finally getting, um, it's almost Christmas. Yay! Um, And today we will be kicking off an abridged Advent series. So Advent is traditionally the four weeks of the calendar, the church calendar, leading up to Christmas. It typically spans the dates of December 1st through December 24th, leading up to Christmas. Uh, This year, our abridged sermon series will have two installments, uh, this one today and then Garrett's next week. Um, And... If you're not familiar with Advent or the tradition of Advent, um, then you may not know that um, Advent isn't found in the Bible. And for for that matter, the holiday of Christmas as a celebration of a holiday isn't actually in the Bible either. Um, But the things that we base these celebrations around are definitely in the Bible all throughout it. Um, The first celebration of Christmas uh, didn't occur until sometime in the 4th century A.D., Uh, 300-some-odd years after the actual birth of Christ and 200 years after the last book of the Bible was written. Uh, But the events of it occurred right kind of smack dab in the middle. Um, Many of us could envision a calendar or our lives without Advent, uh, but I doubt many of us could envision a calendar or our lives without Christmas. I think, honestly, a case could be made that Advent is right up there in importance with Christmas, Because Advent is the anticipation, the building up of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's what the word Advent means, coming or arrival, relating to Jesus. It is both a reminder of things that have happened as well as a reminder regarding things promised that have not yet come. Modern Advent is traditionally marked by five candles, and depending on your tradition, those candles could signify different things, except for the meaning of the one central candle, and that's the Christ candle. You light one candle leading up to Christmas each week, and then that central candle is lit on Christmas Day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. The season of Advent's sole purpose and the season of Christmas, its sole purpose, is to build anticipation and celebration of the first coming of Christ, as well as his often misunderstood and forgotten second coming. On our social media platform that TJ referenced earlier, Realm, we've posted an Advent reading guide that takes you day by day through the Advent season. And while we're almost through it, we only have about eight days, nine days left in the Advent reading plan. If you haven't begun reading it yet, I would really encourage you to. It's been a real blessing to my heart just to reorient myself around the season. Um, I really tried hard to not include the cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season, but it's, it's true, so uh, we'll just let that stand as, as it is. So I would encourage you to dig into that um, with your family or just uh, with yourself. So um, with the coming of Jesus, one of those greatly anticipated events uh, or things that Jesus brings in to us that, that we can experience is joy. Now for some, joy is a concept that may seem distant or even foreign to us. 
Our difficulty with putting our finger on what joy is, though, makes sense. After all, the English language has many different words that describe happiness, or we even have the word joy, but if we look at its definition, it isn't quite what the Bible describes as joy. Now, as anyone who preps for a speech or a sermon, you always kind of look for that definition for the topic that you're preaching on. So I did what anyone else would likely do. I consulted the person nearest to me at the time, which happened to be my daughter, Adeline. I asked her to tell me what joy is to her. And without missing a beat, without pause, this is exactly what she said. M-I-Z-Z-O-U, go Tigers! Rawr! Which two things, I don't know if she fully understood the question, for one, um, but the second, if she did understand it clearly, then um, she hasn't kept her finger on the pulse of Mizzou Athletics, uh, because there's not a lot of excitement that we can have right now, unless you like guys that wear visors. So since that first source proved a little bit unhelpful, it's a great story to tell, and obviously it's, ind- it's adorable, but it's not going to help me write the sermon very well. Um, I consulted the next best thing, maybe, uh, the internet, which I say maybe the next best thing because the internet isn't actually all that helpful anymore. Um, dictionary.com defines joy as a feeling of great pleasure or happiness. And that may be a definition that we can understand culturally. I think culturally, um, America does define joy in that way. It's just an extension or maybe an escalation of happiness. But you see, the reason that I don't find that too helpful is the Bible describes joy completely differently. The Bible doesn't describe joy solely as this emotion that we have depending on our circumstance, Actually, the Bible describes joy as this almost an action that we have no matter the circumstance. It's, it's a response to something that we know, not a response to something that we feel necessarily. And the Bible's description of joy and our culture's description of joy, they, they just don't match that much. Because if that were true, if we can be even commanded to always feel happy, Well, I think that's where we feel the disconnect, because I personally know that there are plenty of circumstances that make it impossible to always have a feeling of great pleasure or happiness, and I know that you do too. In fact, those that supposedly would feel happy in any and every circumstances would be, in effect, lacking any empathy or cognitive emotional awareness when they're faced with these things that hurt them. The reality is that we are all impacted by plenty of things that cause us discomfort, whether physical or emotional, things that make it impossible for us to feel happy or pleasure. That's the world that we live in. A person who always feels happy, who's always smiling, who never shows a shred of negative emotion in the face of danger or pain or death would likely be categorized as maybe a sociopath. In fact, a 1992 paper published in the Journal of Medical Ethics by professor and author Richard Bentall, makes a case for happiness to be classified as a psychiatric disorder, stating, it is shown that happiness is statistically abnormal, consists of a discrete cluster of symptoms, is associated with a range of cognitive abnormalities, and probably reflects the abnormal functioning of the central nervous system. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Happiness is described as statistically abnormal. And that's actually something that if we think about it and if we're real kind of with our circumstances and the things that impact us on a daily basis, that actually may resonate with us. It's no wonder that our minds can't fully wrap our minds around joy. Our culture defines it as a chronic pathological disorder. (laughs) No one wants to say that they have that. At least nobody wants to celebrate it, but... It's something that we need to talk about. We have this broken framework for joy because it's obvious that our lives are not all sunshine and roses, unless you're allergic to both sunshine and roses. It's not news to any of us. We are so in touch with our pain and our discomfort on an individual level, and our culture, mainstream media, film, entertainment, and art is far, far more comfortable exploring the darker sides of our lives, especially today, 
So when we look to culture, we don't get a clear understanding of what joy is. And friends, that's why I chose to preach the sermon this morning. Not because I'm an expert on joy. I'm not an expert on pathological disorders either. But I wanted to preach the sermon on joy because the Bible says that we have it. Not that we can have it. The Bible preaches that if we are in Christ, we already possess it. It's whether or not we want to engage in joy. That's the question. So often I don't choose to engage in that, and I know that many of you don't either. That's part of our fallen nature. But let's talk about what biblical joy is. The Bible describes joy in two different ways. One is the emotion, kind of the happiness. They use two different words for it. One of those words is happiness, which is similar to kind of our definition. But the emotion of happiness can't just be summoned up from nothing. When the Bible uses happiness, it's not a commandment. You mu- it doesn't say that you must be happy. This type of happiness is often expressed by shouts of praise, joy, dancing, laughing. But the second way the Bible describes joy is not like happiness at all. It describes joy as an action. Some parts of the Bible do command us to have joy, to rejoice, to be joyful. So then what is the Bible commanding us to do? Is it commanding us to walk around with a perma-smile? Is it telling us to walk around in willful ignorance towards the pain and suffering that is going on around us or maybe inside us? Is the Bible telling us that we shouldn't mourn or feel sad, that we should ignore these negative emotions that do happen because of circumstance? No. If you read the book of Psalms, while we read it this morning, and that was a joyful praise from King David, if you read a lot of the other Psalms, you will see some of the most depressed, oppressed, writing, angry, writing, misunderstanding of his circumstance, writing that you'll see almost anywhere. Biblical joy does not ignore the reality of our situations, but instead it gives us a way through, and at times it does give us a way out. And that way is Jesus Christ. Which brings us back to Christmas, kind of why we're preaching through this Advent series today. The Christmas holiday itself is a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And our holiday, at least the semi-religious expressions of it, are full of this imagery of a baby in a manger surrounded by shepherds, kings, or wise men, depending on how you translate that word, donkeys, sheep, angels, those types of things. And we ourselves as a family, we have a magnetic nativity scene sitting on our refrigerator. It doesn't come out only during Christmas. It's just there year-round. And recently, we've noticed that our son Jackson, he must love the king that choose, sorry, he choose, the king that's bringing the gift of gold. It's always in his mouth. And it's easy to get wrapped up in this imagery or these characters of Christmas. It's the one thing that our culture does seem to embrace, this kind of like down-home agrarian kind of thing, because it's so far disconnected from us. It's easy to see Jesus as this character in a nativity. But let's not get lost in that. Let's look back to the way that Luke tells of the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Luke 2, 1 through 20. This is a passage widely read during this time of year. Uh, you may, while I'm reading it, you may envision uh, Linus, the Peanuts character, reading it as well. Uh, but please don't do that. I don't sound like that. Um, so let's just jump into it today. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I said earlier that Jesus' first coming was a greatly anticipated event, and that's what this Advent season is about. It's a reflection of this anticipation that we have for the first coming, the celebration of it, and then looking forward to the second coming. And the shepherds, we can see in their response here that they they knew something special was happening. It's not often that you see stories of, of shepherds dropping whatever they were doing, including their sheep, to go do something else. In fact, you see quite the opposite, that a shepherd would be so devoted to even just one sheep leaving the flock that he would go out and get him. You see, these shepherds, they knew, though, that something special was happening, something more important than what they were doing currently. Yes, they had just been told by an angel that this amazing thing was happening, but also they immediately knew and had a framework for what the angel was talking about. It was ingrained in them, an advent that this special thing would happen today. It was ingrained in them that one day this incredible event would occur. From the very beginning of the book of the Bible, Jesus' coming had been announced and promised. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the third chapter of the book, the first promise of a coming Messiah was made. This Messiah would save humanity. It was uttered by God himself. Adam and Eve, the first people, had just made a deadly decision to trust and believe in their own way instead of God's. God had given them a perfect life, one beautiful and bountiful in a world full of meaning and purpose. And they chose, though, to believe a lie. The lie that told them that self-actualization and independence and unhindered freedom all apart from God was the way to their best lives. And this choice was called sin. They took a bite of a piece of a fruit signifying their allegiance to themselves over God. This was the sin. And it was their first sin that ushered in decay, pain, and death. Decay, pain, and death that would run rampant. Decay, pain, and death that would need defeating. And humanity spent thousands of years thereafter proving that we were not and could not be a conquering hero worthy of conquering death. Adam and Eve were powerless to fight against the effects of sin, and their powerlessness is something that we know all too well. I can speak for all of us, I think, in saying that we prove our imperfection on a daily basis. We prove our will to choose our own way over God's repeatedly. We prove that we are no match in conquering the evil in this world. We so badly need a better Adam, a better us, a perfect hero. Without a conquering hero, there is no hope and there is no joy. As, per, as that professor Bentall wrote in his paper cited earlier, he said, In our current state of affairs, with everything going on around us, happiness and joy is a statistical anomaly. There's just too much either indifferent or bad that is inundating us to think that there could possibly be a reason for us to have consistent hope for the future. Luckily, though, God didn't leave us in the lurch for our own self-actualized happiness. And he certainly didn't leave us on the hook for conquering evil in this world. No, that conquering hero was announced by God himself shortly after humanity chose their own way instead of his. God's response to treason was hope. 
God promised that one day everything that sin had ushered in would be undone by one who would be a better Adam. And this first proclamation of Jesus' coming occurring in the opening pages of this book and promises throughout the books of Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, among others, proclaim a coming Redeemer who will win back the people of God and put an end to oppression. Through times of peace and monotony, through times of slavery and exile, through times of oppression both from their own kings and, and the kings from outside nations, the Hebrew people, the people of God, the people that these shepherds were descended of, they were always reminded of this coming Messiah. They lived in constant anticipation that he would come at any time and that he would come to bear their burdens, that he would come to free them from their fears, make up for their imperfections and restore them to God. This is the type of anticipation that every Hebrew boy and girl grew up with on a weekly daily, monthly basis. This is the type of anticipation that the shepherds lived in. Thousands of years, a culture defined by the message that one day, one would come. That is a greatly anticipated event. And so they responded as you would expect. They dropped everything to go see. And when they saw that it was true, when they saw that he had come, they rejoiced. Their response was joy. Have you ever anticipated something like that? Maybe not quite thousands of years of anticipation, but have you ever anticipated something important to happen? Maybe you wanted to accomplish something or be a part of something so bad that you worked hard and devoted all of your effort and energy to it. Our society is one that revolves around events, markers and milestones that tend to culturally define us. Maybe it's getting a driver's license or graduating high school or getting into college or graduating college or getting your first job or maybe it's marriage or sex or parenthood or empty nesting or retirement. These are all events that we have been conditioned to greatly anticipate, right? And for good reason, too. These are all really amazing things. But we know that these milestones are not ultimate or at least we do after we've accomplished them. We have all experienced the feeling that when we finally reach that milestone, when we finally reach that point, that maybe we realize that it wasn't quite as perfect as it, it was promised. Maybe not quite as good. And if you are like me, maybe as you are sitting in the celebration of reaching that milestone, you're always already looking forward to that other milestone two or three years down the road. When we set our hope and the source of our joy on ourselves and what we can accomplish, we find that we had better create another one to look forward to because that last one didn't quite reach what we thought it would. We need to anticipate something new, something better, something that won't break the promises it told us it would keep. But we will consistently be disappointed. We will consistently be worn out by that pursuit. We will never fully fill that need. There will always be a void felt. And this was the reason why Jesus' first coming and his second coming is so anticipated. This is why the coming of Jesus was marked so often with exclamations of joy. The coming of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is not your run-of-the-mill milestone or life goal. Of the coming of Jesus, Zephaniah 3 says, and it should be on the screens, it says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. 
and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you a renowned and praised among the, all the peoples of the earth, when I restore to you your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The excerpt that Zephaniah is talking about here, that's about Jesus. Jesus is the one who will bring all of those things. Jesus is the one who brought all of those things. If we look back to what is promised with Jesus coming, and we just run down the list from from verses 15 through 20, when Jesus comes, he will remove and appease every judgment. Think about that. The judgment that, that you feel, the judgment that you place on yourself, Jesus has removed and appeased that. Defeat of all that oppose and oppress you. With Jesus comes a mighty one who will save you. With Jesus comes a mighty one who will rejoice over you in gladness. That means he likes you. With Jesus comes a mighty one whose love will quiet you. That's peace. With Jesus comes a mighty one who will see over you. That's protection. With Jesus comes the presence of God and with it the eradication of evil. With Jesus comes uniting of all those who mourn and are outcasts. With Jesus comes the removal of shame and ridicule, which he will turn into praise and renown in all the earth. Amen. How many of us look to ourselves, our successes and our accomplishments, our bank accounts, or even other people to provide us all of those things? How many of us look to those milestones and life events to give us what God promises through Zephaniah chapter 3? And when we look to those things, our response is not like Zephaniah says in verse 14. Our response is not shouting and singing aloud and rejoicing. If anything, it's, it's fear and, and worry and fatigue. And that's the beauty of what true joy is. That's, that's the beauty of, of Jesus' joy. It doesn't leave us with fatigue. True joy has its roots not in our circumstances, but in the truth spoken over us. And not only over us, but truth spoken over all the earth. If you have your faith in Jesus, you no longer have to rely on yourself to create meaning and purpose. You can just take his. If you have your faith in Jesus, you no longer have to rely on yourself to see something good, something worth celebrating in the midst of sorrow and pain and atrocity and trauma. Does this mean that those terrible things don't exist? No. Does it mean that we just ignore them? No. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul tells us here that our sufferings, our pains, and even our traumas are not in vain, but that they produce endurance. Your present, past, and future failings do not define you. They cannot steal your joy. Your past, present, and future hurts and traumas do not define you. They cannot steal your hope. We can rejoice in God through Jesus Christ who has reconciled us, who has conquered sin, who has conquered death right now. 
The Christmas season is a season for us to be reminded of the joy that we have in Christ. A joy founded by the one who did not remain far off, but instead came near. One who became part of us, entering into the struggle of daily life, the struggle to make a living, the struggle to create deep and deep relationships with those around us, the struggle to cope with loss and relationship and, and loss of life. Jesus entered into that life. He's not disconnected from us. He didn't just tell us to feel better about all this stuff. He entered into it while always keeping his eyes on the eternal prize. That prize was, was unity with you and I and all who will trust in him. We were his prize. Unity with the Father was his prize. From heaven to the manger to a conquering king on the throne, Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of our joy. Often we do not feel lasting joy because we continuously put our hope and our faith and anticipation on things that can't promise that. We put our joy in toys or houses that we think will provide satisfaction and status. We put our joy in people that have the capacity to hurt us deeply. We put our joy in the mountaintop experiences of travel or professional accomplishments. And those things become a revolving door of disappointment and fatigue. But when we put our joy in Jesus Christ and the work that he has already finished, we can weather any storm because he has already accomplished it. He has taken away our fatigue and our fear. This was accomplished at once by Christ on the cross. And additionally, we can be hopeful through the sadness and tragedy and chaos that is happening around us that we see every day that seems more and more real to us knowing that it is not supposed to be that way, but also knowing that one day it will not be this way. One day the source of evil will be defeated, and the fruits of his labor will be undone. And this is what we anticipate with the second coming of Jesus. Band, you can come back up. Friends, we have a, a joy in Jesus that has already been acquired for us. At times we may not feel it because we're choosing not to recognize him. Sometimes we may not engage in that joy because we're seeking joy from all of these other sources. Friends, this morning we're going to take communion as a family, receiving the blessing and the gift that Jesus has procured for us, salvation on a cross, Conquering and eradicating death and sin. I just want to encourage you as you come to the table to thank him for that. Thanksgiving is a way to engage in joy. As it aligns our hearts with the goodness of God and not let our hearts get so encapsulated with everything else that is going on around us. Thanksgiving proclaims something that has already occurred we know that we can have faith in that. So we ask that um, any, any and all who wish to uh, come up and receive the Lord's table is invited. We just ask that your salvation be in Christ, that you believe in him for the salvation of your sins, that your trust be in him. It doesn't have to be a perfect trust. It just has to be trust. Um, so we're going to sing a couple of songs. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's going to be on the screens. I'll just read it from there. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. If you would please stand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. For, for first, his coming. A coming, his arm didn't have to be twisted for him to come. He came willingly. Knowing that his coming would ensure our unity with him forever. God, we thank you for that. God, help us this morning to respond to you, to your word. 
God, whether that be confession and repentance for things that we have put our hope and our joy in other than you, whether that response be fully engaging in joy. God, give us the freedom to respond to you in in the way that you have called us to. Let us not be concerned or worried about what is going on around us. Let us take a moment to commune with you in song, in prayer, and worship. God, we thank you for all that you are. Amen.